Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, the new editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm really pleased to be joined by Jane Martinson, the Marjorie Dean Professor of Financial Journalism at City University in London, who wrote one of the main stories from my first issue, What's Going On at the Daily Mail. In her piece of in-depth reportage, Jane charts the Kremlin-esque machinations at the top of arguably Britain's most influential newspaper that led to the toppling of the popular old Etonian editor, Geordie Gray, and why the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is probably not too displeased at that particular bit of news. So you wrote a, a fascinating and lengthy piece in the current issue of Prospect about the Daily Mail. Tell us why the Daily Mail matters in British society beyond the fact that it's a, it's a mass-selling newspaper. That's something that I really try to grapple with. And to do so, I talk to lots of politicians, lots of people in the public eye. And I think it, it's twofold. It's not, it, it, it doesn't really make sense, you know, that this newspaper, even a mass market newspaper, we all know that newspaper readership is declining, um, the readers are ageing or dying off. Um, and yet still the front page of the Daily Mail in particular can really dictate the news agenda. I think partly because it's made a huge impact under Paul Dacre's um, editorship, 26 years, it, it sort of very much positioned itself as the voice of Middle England, outside London, outside the people who uh, politicians and journalists perhaps talk to more often. And also, I think because of the nature of our media and politics in the UK, where the broadcast media use front pages, the ones that are sort of loudest sometimes get the most attraction. And so it was astonishing to talk to sort of politicians, senior politicians on both sides of the house, who all said that the, this idea of the male test is still really important. Perhaps the further out you go, uh, less um, less important. So Andy Burnham, for example, says that he he doesn't care as much now that he's in Manchester as he did when he was uh, health secretary, for example. But it still does make a difference and and sort of have an impact on the agenda. When when you look at look back at the, the sort of history of the press, post war press, I guess up to 
the 1970s, people would have said that the Times was the most influential newspaper. It was read by what they referred to as top people. Top people read the Times was their advertising slogan. And then something happened uh, under Mrs. Thatcher where she simply did the maths. She worked out that the Times had something like 200,000 readers and uh, Kelvin McKenzie, who was editing The Sun, uh, sorry, Larry, Larry Lamb, of course, at that point, Larry Lamb had uh, something like 4 million readers of The Sun. So it was more important to keep on side with The Sun than with The Times. Um, but at some point in the last 20 years, the, the halo has slipped from the sun and has moved to the mail. Is, is that a fair sort of summary of, <laughs> of press history over the last 60 years? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it is. I think um, it's really interesting. I talked to Calvin McKenzie, who followed Larry Lamb, as you know, sun editor. Um, and I think the idea of how important the sun was in Margaret Thatcher's success in terms of her political sex, success was, was incredible and probably, you know, this partly answers your question about why the, the papers are still significant. Her broadening out was part of the democratisation of the Conservative Party, which had been this leading party, still is. So it wasn't just the sort of leading people, it was everyday people. You know, it, it affected the way she she changed. She went out of pin, Twin Set and Pearls. Um, she was much more, you know, grocer's daughter. It was a sort of attempt to democratise her reputation which worked enormously um and and that that carried on obviously we had the labor party that was scared of these terrible front pages like turn the um turn the lights out when you leave britain ahead of elections um but in the time and, and interestingly i mean you know when you first asked me to do this um this piece thank you very much for that um georgie gregg had actually his mail had overtaken the sun in terms of readership but I think, as we as we've talked about, it's not just the number of readers. It's also this this idea that the male test will affect you. It, it's at the polls. So how do you reach newspapers? How how do you reach the electorate? How do you reach people that vote for you? I think what's really interesting now, and if we were to have this conversation in five, ten years' time, you know, the Turing law is sort of um, everything is getting faster. That. The, the democratization now is about the web and how this sort of intermediation, how do newspapers, the sort of legacy media, as they're often called, how do they go on to the web and become this arbiter of what really matters and start speaking sort of, you know, the stories they promote, they're the ones that matter. I think you talk to lots of politicians, lots of people in the public eye, I mean, Meghan Markle is a very good example at the moment, they want to disintermediate this this sort of stranglehold of the media and journalists and print. Um, the male has this sort of aura of reaching the largest number of people, not just its readers, as I say, but by setting the news agenda with online and, um, and on broadcast media. Before we come on to Geordie Gregg, who uh, became editor about three years ago, we should just... Um talk about Paul Dacre. So he was editor for 26 years and was, um, I, I suppose, a, a giant figure in Fleet Street, um, loved by some, loathed by others. Um, de describe uh, Dacre um, as an editor and the paper that he created. Well, I think it was really interesting. I, I I talked to a lot of people for this piece, um, and a lot of people inside the mail, very few of whom wanted to be um, quoted given all the changes that were happening during the time. 
Um, I think he was, he, as you say, loved and loathed in equal measure, uh, or respected, I think, rather than loved. I mean, it, you know, he'd been editor for 26 years. The Mail had done incredible things. I mean, you know, people talk about awards, but the Stephen Lawrence thing was a was a real high. Um, he also chaired the editor's code. I think he also is the epitome of the editor who refuses to explain or to really engage with people that he just doesn't believe in. So uh, particularly his, you know, the last few years where he really, um, the male, I mean, these are studies to be done, but how much impact the male had in encouraging people to vote for Brexit. You know, he would, those sorts of front pages that would call judges enemies of the people and crush the saboteurs. I mean, at a time when we'd had our first sitting MP that had been killed in an absolutely appalling murder, it, it felt like he had really coarsened the discourse, actually. It was making a very angry nation that was quite divided over the issue of whether or not we were in the EU, even more divided. The, the defenders of, of um, uh, particularly tabloid journalism um, say, look, we're, we're not... It's a mistake to say that we're leading opinion. What we do is to reflect opinion. We, you know, we wouldn't sell two million copies or a million copies or however hundreds of millions follow follow the title on the web. If we were arrogantly leading, what we brilliantly do, and if they're feeling cross, they they would insert. And what the broadsheets don't do is to have our finger on the pulse of what's become known as Middle England. Um, I mean, where are you on that argument about? Uh, you know, say over Brexit or who who should, um, you know, win the vote at a general election? Is is this the Daily Mail um, having a, a gigantic and disproportionate effect on British public opinion or is it simply reflecting uh, what it believes public opinion to be? Well, I think, I mean, I suppose if I can answer that question in a slightly different way, I think what the best tabloid newspapers, and I include the Mail in this actually, is I, I do think when they when they do the job well, the, do the job of journalism well, they really do hold the powerful to account. And so when we have stories about what's happening at the moment, for example, with our prime minister, if they are genuinely running stories, so we would not have heard, for example, about the Christmas party that was being held on the day that, um, you know, the prime minister had actually banned people from seeing their loved ones in hospital. Um so I do think there is a sort of, there is very much, you know, the right of tabloid newspapers, sort of campaigning tabloid newspapers to be able to at least give their version of what is uh, the sort of thoughts of the people who are not in the sort of worlds of Westminster and Fleet Street necessarily. Now, that's that really has to be done, though, as a genuine journalistic exercise and not by the whim of either the editor or the proprietor um, who, you know, have their own um, views. They tend to older, very wealthy white men, you know, then saying that actually what they're doing is sticking up for the people of Sunderland. And, you know, I think we need to see proper reporting, proper evidence of that. And at this point, we ought to introduce the figure of uh, Lord Rothermere, the proprietor um, of the Daily Mail, who's, who is a genuine press baron. He, he's inherited his title because his ancestors were press barons. Um, so you have this figure who, who 
uh, owns his title. And uh, it's very difficult to know what he really thinks because he, he almost never speaks. But any reader of Private Eye over the years would have picked up um, the allegation that, that Lord Rothermere and his wife, Lady Rothermere, um, actually didn't necessarily agree with a lot of what the male wrote, and particularly they, they were a bit squeamish about the, the male's very raucous line on Brexit and that they, they were themselves Remainers. I, I think officially Lord Rothermere is domiciled in France. Um, and that they became increasingly uneasy about the line, and, and eventually the, the, the point came um, that, that um, Paul Dacre was uh, elevated to um, an honorific, largely honorific title within the mail. I mean, what, what do we know about Lord Rothermere and, and how true all that was during the last years of Lord, uh, of Lord <laughs> well, I nearly called him Lord Dacre, uh, Paul Dacre? Um, <laughs> Boris has failed to give him a job in at Ofcom that maybe he thinks he should be in the Lords. Anyway, um, so as you say, he I did ask to talk to Lord Rothermere as part of the piece, and he um, uh, sent his uh, media relations man to say no. Um, but what I can tell, having talked to lots of people, that his overriding. Um, it, really, his impetus, the reason he does most things in terms of the papers and the, the business is to keep it going and to keep it making money um, so that he can hand on to his children. He has five children. Um, his 27-year-old eldest son works within the business, as he did when he was in his 20s. But there was some unease uh, among advertisers and among some pressure groups. You know, the, 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 this had become a, a toxic brand and that advertisers no longer wanted to be seen in it. How, how real was that threat? I suppose the best way to point to it, way, it was it was real in the sense that I think Stop Funding Hate, the organisation that was sort of an umbrella body for other groups, so marginalised groups like the Muslim Council of Great Britain, who were constantly complaining to the papers, that Stop Funding Hate then used that to harness... Um, and it's lots of social media campaigning to um, get advertisers on board. Um, and, and there were lots of advertisers that stopped. Geordie Gregg, in his first year in the job, did an interview with the FT in which he talked about 265 advertisers coming back on, uh, which infuriated his predecessor, Paul Dacre, who went to went as far as to write to the FT to um, criticise his successor, which is, you know, for a man who doesn't ever get interviewed that much. It was um, pretty astonishing. I suppose the quid pro quo to groups like Stop Funding Hate, though, is that Mail Online, which um, is it, very, very different to the paper itself, but it does still run the sort of anti-migration stories. It has lots of celebrity stories. You know, the sidebar of shame is, is very famous. Advertisers have, have seemed very happy during this few years to carry on advertising with um, with Mail Online. Um, so, you know, the that there has been a sense that the toxic brand had put off advertisers. Kelvin McKenzie was really interesting about this. He said, you know, people still want salacious stuff. They want to be titillated and have sort of um, outrageous, you know, things that make them angry, that stir emotions. But advertisers feel nervous about doing that because perhaps younger people don't want that so much. So he felt that there was an economic 
imperative not to um not as you say this sort of idea of having a toxic brand that is very angry all the time so there came at this point where um, Paul Dacre uh, stepped down or stepped up, whichever is the right terminology, and then he was succeeded by Geordie Gregg, who had been editing the Mail on Sunday. And again, uh, readers of Private Eye, how, how accurate all these stories were, <laughs> but there was suddenly a drumbeat that these two men weren't on the greatest terms and that the papers seemed to stand for very different things. Um, uh, I mean, just give us a little portrait of, of Geordie Gregg and how different he is from his predecessor. Well, I suppose what's interesting is talking to people. It was a huge shock when he did he did leave. Um, and then when you talk to people who just a week or so before had said, you know, how, how marvellous it was and how he was good for the mail, it all sort of points out how unusual he was as well. So he had been at the Mail on Sunday. He... You know, he's someone, he's often portrayed, you know, he's an old Etonian who went to Oxford, who is friends with everyone. He's got the best contacts book um, in the whole of, you know, in society, let alone Fleet Street. He knows everyone. Everyone knows him. Um, he then, he actually started, though, as a as a reporter. He, he famously turned down a high-paying financial job and became a reporter on um, a paper not far from here in Deptford, um, actually, and he worked his way up. He worked on the mail as a very junior reporter. But then he went away and he very unusually was the editor of Tatler, the society magazine. Um, he, he then came back and edited the mail on Sunday. And all throughout the huge difference between him and his colleagues, whether Paul Dacre or Ted Verity, who was at the time, um, on the mail on Sunday and left as soon as Geordie Gregg got appointed to go to work on the daily with his his mentor, Paul Dacre. Um, he, he was very different. He was seen out and about. He was very public. He was very happy to talk to other journalists, which, as I point out in the piece, none of the key players at the top of the mail, whether that's Paul Dacre, Ted Verity or Martin Clark or Lord Rothermere, like giving interviews to, to other journalists, despite the fact that they are uh, with the exception of Lord Rothermere, all journalists, or, and of course they are all very much involved in the media industry. So he was very different in many ways. Um, but he, you know, uh, as we've already said, he was seen as doing a rather good job in a way because he won lots of awards, his paper overtook the sun. Circulation has been hammered by COVID, uh, all print newspapers, you know, rising costs, and um, and also the fact that people just aren't reading newspapers as much. But the mail had lost, uh, had done better than its mid-market rivals. Oh, and indeed tabloid rivals. If you had to describe how the Geordie Gregg mail was different from the Paul Dacre mail, and some people said it was a kind of gentler version of the mail, was, is that fair? I think there was a, definitely a difference in tone, I think, and a, quite a few people I talked to, um, you know, whether that was Jeremy Hunt on the Conservative side or Chris Bryant, who's a huge fan of Geordie Gregg. Um, yeah, I think I think the idea that the harsh, nasty edge, there was definitely a sense of no more Mr. Nasty. It, I mean, often the story choices were, you know, surprisingly similar. There were still lots of stories about the royals, although... They were different stories. And actually, you've really seen since 
Georgie Gregor's gone. It's not been very long, but a real sort of sense of um, the Royals and the BBC are back in the sightlines of the daily and not just the Sunday uh, mail title. So then uh, I, I think you've, you filed your piece on a Wednesday um, and um, and uh, it was a very elegant piece. It was um, it, it was a very good description of the, 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 the change of guard at the mail. And then suddenly the person who um, seems to have been the last person to see it coming, the editor himself, was sacked. Um, tell us what happened during that meeting between Geordie Gregg and Lord Rothermere. Um Well, so far as I know, there were only sort of two people actually in the meeting at the time, but lots of people obviously saw Geordie Gregg leave his um, office and he was called up by Lord Rothermere. Um, he, it was on the day, actually. It was the day before the announcement was made. So the day before... Um, there'd been a change of the guard. Someone who'd been the chief executive had, had left, um, and the, uh, there was a whole change of, uh, change of mood. Anyway, he was called up by Lord Rothermere. And as far as I can tell, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been the forthcoming 125th celebrations. It could have been what the new CEO was going to do, who was very close to Martin Clark, the head of Mail Online. And instead, what happened is Georgie Gregg walked into this, um, the office, the huge suite of offices that Lord Rothermere has on the sixth floor of Northcliffe House and was told that he was no longer required. Um, and the only, the word that was used was brusque. It was a very brusque meeting. There's a lot of shock, I think. I mean, he was obviously incredibly shocked. When it, when the announcement then went out after the markets closed on the Wednesday, um, as you say, the, the shock in the newsroom was audible. I mean, no one saw it coming, apart from obviously the tiny handful of people that were involved in the decision. And why was he sacked? So there are two things, really. There's the economic reality that Lord Rothermere has been convinced that um, I think online is the future, which we'll all agree with, but it's the sort of how you transition to that space. And that in the interregnum, there needed to be huge cost cutting. Newsprint prices have gone up massively. Uh, it's really expensive to print newspapers. And there needs to be a merger of the Mail on Sunday and the Mail, the daily title. And most other newspaper groups have done this, did this years ago. Um, but, you know, the Mail and the Mail on Sunday still act like competitive beasts. They have their own staff. They compete on stories. They'll even... Um, put bids in for books, for example. Um, and as you know, Alan, you know, that, that sort of Guardian and the Observer, that, that happened a long time ago, um, well, t 10 years or so, when it became much more of a sort of combined operation, albeit with different editors and some different staff. So Ted Verity was seen as the person who would do that, with Paul Dacre coming back to um, to help. Uh, added to the fact that there was a lot of the, this sort of internecine rivalry that meant that um, it had to be one or the other. So, you know, the, the sense that it was Rothermere's decision that Ted Verity would be the one who would do these cuts. I mean, you remember that the announcement about Paul Dacre didn't happen for another three days. It happened on the Monday afterwards. So, so initially the story was that uh, Ted Verity, the former editor of the Mail on Sunday, was now going to be editor of the whole show. 
And Martin Clark, the person who had built Mail Online into this world-beating operation, would be promoted within the organisation. Actually, Martin Clark, his title is publisher. Um, so he he had always had this role where he had, as you say, you know, for 12, 13 years, he'd, he'd built up Mail Online into be one of this, the, you know, the most read sites in the world, um, not just the UK, but America and um, Australia. He'd had this title of being publisher and he could advise the editors of the print titles. Now, again, his relationship with Georgie Gregg was not seen to be of the best. So um, that that didn't really happen. So his title stayed the same, but he still, he then seemed very much to be, um, his position was was confirmed as the person in charge. And even though Ted Verity had been given all male titles, the seven-day operation, uh, Martin had this sort of publisher role that he could advise him on what to do. I mean, you know, he's known to work 14-hour days anyway doing the online um, the online things and spending half his time here and half his time in New York. So, um, it, you know, how much he would do, it was very much Ted Verity was the one who was pr- promoted we should say that all all this is against the background of Lord Rothermere trying to take his entire company private. So um, it's, it's a very crucial point for the company. Yes, it's a key one, actually. I should have said when I was talking about the economic reality and why Rothermere decided to do this when he did, that the, the decision to take the company private, um, you know, buy out the shareholders, have full ownership is is felt to be key to all of this happening now. So there were still two more twists. So um, you, you <laughs> after a period of despair, I heard in your voice, having having just written this um, beautifully turned piece, uh, the realisation you were going to have to completely rewrite it because um, uh, the situation then had changed. But there were still um, two more plot twists, weren't there? So the, the, the first, which you've just hinted at was that Paul Dacre, who had been uh, in for the job of chair of Ofcom, the media regulator, um, uh, suddenly announced that he was no longer interested in this job, that he he, um, was very rude about the so-called Whitehall blob who had stopped him having this job. Um, And um, suddenly two days later, he popped up returning to the company he had resigned from a few weeks earlier? Not resigned from. They've been slightly misreported, which is very easy to do, obviously, with this whole organisation, as they don't uh, necessarily put press releases out when they make these <laughs> these announcements. He So at the end, when he'd left being editor-in-chief, he, he had a three-year contract to be... It was a complete... It seemed like it was a, an honorific title of being... Um, chairman of associated titles but he kept his office on the sixth floor he kept his secretary his chauffeur his um various perks um at the end of that three years he was still in this long-running saga of trying to be um chair of ofcom which he has written about rather entertainingly uh since deciding not to go ahead with it um when that really, he felt that that was not going to happen, as you say, because he was fighting against the blob of the civil service. Um, the renegotiations with Lord Dacre about the, whether or not this contract, his secretary did indeed retire, um, after, um, I'm sure long, uh, um, 
long service um, with him. But he he had a renegotiation with Lord Dacre, uh, Lord Rothermere. I've done it as well, and um, you heard it here first, obviously. And they he basically has agreed to go back, you know, which is which is interesting, given that I mean he is seventy three now. Uh, not that I'm in any way ageist, and 73-year-olds um, can do fabulous jobs, especially with that much experience. Um, although Lord Rothermere did actually, um, one of his first acts when taken over from his father was to stop directors from staying on post-75. But anyway, that's by the by. He came in, so Geordie Gregg's last day was on the Friday, and on the Monday there was the announcement about Paul Dacre's new title back advising um Rothermere and of course um Ted Verity the editor now of of every all the print titles and Martin Clark. So you then rewrote this piece uh, and it was equally elegant and we were very grateful for it and we um we did our own edits and uh, finally pressed the button to uh, to print the magazine whereupon the final bombshell so tell us what the final bombshell was. So I have to say, when, when the announcement went out in the mail office, I'd, uh, for anyone who's read the piece, you know, everyone uh, on the mail newsroom, you could hear people whispering swear, swear words. I have to say, the one that actually made me swear out loud was the Friday night announcement. I got an email sent by the really very helpful um, PR man. <laughs> he sent an email saying that Martin Clark had decided to stand down. And I have to say, it was the, the one that actually made me yelp because <laughs> because Martin Clark's position seemed to be so brilliant. He had been rumoured, I had talked to quite a few people, he had been rumoured to be offered a job at, um, by Rupert Murdoch. That was, you know, people were desperately scrambling to work out why Geordie Gregg had been had been um, sacked. But it, it was, you know, they thought, well, Martin Clark has gone and got everything. He's, you know, he is now fully in charge of the train set. Um, however, this turns out not quite to have been right. The official announcement um, suggests that Lord, this wasn't entirely of Lord Rothermere's. Um, uh, he didn't really want it to happen. You know, he had tried to keep him there. Um, he's going to stay. Well, he's going to stay at least until the end of February working. And then he's going to be committed to the organisation to the end of next year. He is understood, like many uh, media executives, successful media executives of his age, he's 57, to be quite tempted to uh, build something his own and make he would make more money that way. Uh, now, of course, Mail Online, he's done a fantastic job and been paid handsomely by all accounts, but he doesn't own it and um, he is very unlikely to ever own it as his name is Clark and not Harmsworth. So he is understood to be thinking about going off and doing something else and setting up something else. And in the announcement, Lord Rothermere suggests he would actually give, you know, help him to do that or be supportive is the word, I think. Can we end up by just talking about the politics of all this? So one thing that I think a lot of people have found rather striking um, uh, within recent months, especially around the Owen Patterson affair, where Boris Johnson had decided that he would whip everybody to uh, resist uh, any punishment for his colleague who had been found guilty of um, parliamentary breaches by the Standards Commissioner. Uh, and 
a lot of Tory papers were, were um, uh, how can one put it, um, uh, quite, um, they, they, they towed the line. They didn't think this was a big story. Um, the mail, by contrast, came out and, and uh, was ferocious in an attack on Johnson. Uh, and it was widely thought that the, the mail's front page led to Johnson throwing in the towel and doing a U-turn, thinking, well, actually, if I've got the mail against me, I have no hope. So, so the mail was, was being fairly aggressive towards Johnson. They'd also broken the story of, of the wallpaper uh, under Geordie Gregg. Um, and now uh, Gregg is gone. Um, yeah, what about the conspiracy theorists who say there's a link here that... that um, that actually it suits the mail. Maybe it suits other newspapers who want to uh, have um, more lenient privacy laws, for instance, after the, in the wake of the Meghan Markle uh, recent victory, uh, to have a more pliant editor in uh, in that chair. Is that is that far fetched, or is there something in those whispers? Well, I think it's absolutely right to say that Ted Verity, when editing the Mail on Sunday, did not um, did not cover Wallpaper Gates or indeed the Owen Patterson story with the same further that Geordie Gregg's Daily Mail did. And since he has taken over, the issue of sleaze in the government has fallen down um, definitely the, the Mail's agenda. Um, and it would be clear that if you were Boris Johnson, you would possibly raise a glass of champagne at the news that Georgie Gregg had left and Ted Verity had taken over. Um, the, it's interesting what you say about the privacy laws because it, it, it has, with the Meghan Markle um, results, we have the Court of Appeal saying that um, it ruling in favour of her privacy and um, copyright case. Um, the male has, or they're considering a further appeal. I'm not sure if they're going to do that. Well, I think it's absolutely right to say that Ted Verity, when editing the Mail on Sunday, did not um, did not cover Wallpaper Gates or indeed the Owen Patterson story with the same further that Geordie Gregg's Daily Mail did. And since he has taken over, the issue of sleaze in the government has fallen down um, definitely the, the Mail's agenda. Um, and it would be clear that if you were Boris Johnson, you would possibly raise a glass of champagne at the news that Georgie Gregg had left and Ted Verity had taken over. Um, the, it's interesting what you say about the privacy laws because it, it, it has, with the Meghan Markle um, results, we have the Court of Appeal saying that um, it ruling in favour of her privacy and um, copyright case. Um, the male has, or they're considering a further appeal. I'm not sure if they're going to do that. Um, but they are definitely seeing it as a part, a really good way of arguing that privacy laws should be changed. So now we've come out of the EU, we need to give um, celebrities such as Meghan Markle less, uh, less right to dictate what is and isn't used. Uh, and other papers, as you say, there have been interesting interviews um, in The Times there's a real sense that, um, you know, having, if you believe in the sort of, this is you scratch your back, I'll scratch, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. This is um, good news for Boris Johnson and the male are trying to see whether it can be good news for the press in terms of, um, in terms of the laws. 
there was a remarkable front page in the Mail on Sunday yesterday at the point where everyone else was smelling blood. The Mail on Sunday led with Boris Johnson being crossed with the BBC and with a with an editorial saying, yes, the, 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 the BBC is being too nasty to the Prime Minister. I mean, it was a marked change of tone from the Geordie Gregg years. That was, um, and funnily enough, there were a few there was sort of remarks on social media that we had actually predicted that in the piece um, uh, that I wrote because actually the BBC is, has been in the sightlines of the Mail on Sunday under Ted Verity, and yesterday's that front page suggested that that's going to continue. Um, I mean, I found the there was stand first was astonishing because it sort of it said you know the the BBC has is failing in its first purpose, which is to um, promote the booster rollout rather than actually, um, and you know, quoted the prime minister saying it was being vengeful. But I mean, it, it was sort of astonishing that this idea that uh, sleaze within the government should be something that journalism, uh, journalistic organisations such as the BBC shouldn't be covering. Yeah, it was that was it was really interesting. I think the BBC, I mean, you know, privacy and. Um, uh, I think all journalists are interested in in the notion of privacy, and you know you you don't want any journalist to uh, not be able to um, tell the truth. It just seems that the agenda there that was very much a front page that made you think that's an agenda which is against, which is taking a story and making it all about the BBC, which seemed slightly bizarre. I feel like because you know that's. I think most voters won't be thinking it's all about the BBC. But, of course, that is in the Trump playbook, as we've been uh, calling it for some time. You know, blame the media, um, blame the messenger, don't blame the person uh, giving jobs to his mates. And that's all from us. Thanks so much, Jane Martinson, for um, for writing this piece. I know it, it, um, you aged about 10 years during the writing of it because you had to rewrite it so many times, but it's a, it's a great piece. Thank you very much for tuning in. If, if you've enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber, grab a copy of the New Prospect magazine available on newsstands now, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.